Listener-supported KFUO invites you to listen live to our annual share It's your opportunity to show your support to KFUO. If you can't join us live, please prayerfully consider supporting us by calling 314-996-1518 and asking about our giving levels. You can also click the Give Now button on our webpage. Share 2017, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Good afternoon, Universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions, and false notions of the enemy, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogma, devoted to the belief that when God speaks, he does so in order that we speak his word back to him. As St. Paul exhorts all Christians to hunger for the truth, he says, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. You, however, Christian, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught. I have guests with me today, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flamley, both pastors at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. for uh, Nice to be here. So we've been, that's excellent, Phil. I mean, it is nice to be here. The uh, We've been working our way through the two religions, which Peeper talks about, grace and works, and how the cause of division in the church, all division, all division in life, not just the church, all, all problems in the world, ultimately come down to the wrong religion, the religion of works trying to reassert itself. Adam sort of made it up, and now we keep, as his children, keep keep making it up as well. And then he began to try to prove that this is not only a problem outside the church, but a problem in the church, that all the visible divisions in Christendom can be traced back to the wrongheaded placing of works in the place of grace. And then he has to give specific examples. So last week we looked at the Roman Catholic teaching on the matter, which you might think that that's what the Protestants were protesting against, that grace had been uh, moved away by the indulgences, by teaching that you had to do worship of the saints and, and relics and all that kind of stuff. And now that the Protestants came, the Protestant Reformation wiped that all away. Of course, all Protestantism now should understand grace, but it doesn't. And so in the section today, we pick up on page 25. He begins to talk about what he calls the Reformed denominations. And, and by that, I don't think he means Baptists. I don't think he means Pentecostals. I think I think he means the, the Calvinists themselves, who, at least on paper, get a lot of grace stuff right. But looking at these Reformed denominations and trying to demonstrate how they also, where we disagree with them, it, it comes down to be a matter of these two religions that exist in the world works versus grace. And I should say with that, he's going to say it right off the bat, it also comes down to Scripture alone. So whether, whether you have your formal principle, the idea that you say Scripture is what you stand on as your material principle, you know, the thing that you actually are going to base what you stand on on uh, is, a, is a different matter. So both Lutherans and the Calvinists, at least in theory, have a formal principle of Scripture, but our, our material principle is quite different. For the Lutheran, it is salvation by grace through faith. And we read even the Scriptures all the way through this most central doctrine. For them, it tends to be the sovereignty of God. I don't know how much that will come up today. But where he starts off then at section 2 on page 25, he says, The Reformed denominations likewise— 
acknowledge in principle the divine authority of the divinely inspired scriptures. The inspiration of scripture has found valiant champions among the Reformed. But in practice, Reformed theology forsakes the scripture principle. The history of dogma tells the story. In those doctrines in which it differs from the Lutheran Church, and for the sake of which it has established itself as a separate body with invisible Christendom, the Reformed Church, as far as it follows in the footsteps of Zwingli and Calvin, sets aside the scripture principle and operates instead with rationalistic axioms. The Reformed theologians frankly state that reason must have a voice in determining Christian doctrine. He's going to try to prove that point in just a moment, but let's just kind of like dwell on that for a sec. So on the one hand, you have the Pope says so. On the other hand, now you have, well, reason says so. That's right. I mean, the the Reformed, they claim Scripture alone. They claim that they get their doctrine from the, the Scripture, and they embrace that Reformation principle. The three solas of the Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, they add Christ alone, and they probably add to God's glory alone also. But they, but they love the Scripture alone principle, and in fact, they'll argue against the Lutherans and say that they didn't go far enough, that they still, that the Lutherans are a matter of Scripture and tradition. But Pieper here asserts, he says, let's test the theory here. Let's see who has scripture alone. And he does it by going to the differences. Now, I think this is, a, um, this is helpful. Uh, in fact, Pieper is teaching us maybe something bigger than the specific point here. And that is when it comes to our theological conversations, even though it might not be the most fun, the most helpful thing is to, in fact, look at where uh, the churches disagree. Look at the points of disagreement. And then you can see where the people are getting their doctrine. So, so Pieper's going to say, hey, the Calvinists and the Lutherans have different doctrines about certain different things. Let's look at why. Why do we disagree with one another? Why do we not uh, have agreement on the particular doctrine? And then we can see what the formal principle is, what our authority is, and where we're drawing the doctrine. Now, Pastor Flamey, you'd mentioned that you don't necessarily know if you actually know a Reformed uh, a Calvinist out there, but you knew, do know so, some Arminians. So this this way that Pastor Wolfmuller is talking about of trying to engage someone about our differences by going to Scripture on the differences themselves, that really applies across the board, right? Yeah, I should think so. I mean, that's just a good rule in and of itself that, uh, you know, we could pay attention to uh, a, a person's or I suppose uh, any particular religious person's, you know, set of principles and axioms mesh them against our own and say, oh, we're the same. Or we could actually listen to how they preach and how they teach and how they present the Holy Scriptures, which is, uh, which is better, you know. Our unity with other Christians is a unity of teaching and preaching, you know. We don't get together and say, hey, what are your principles? And hey, what are my principles? No, we want to actually pay attention to how we read the Scriptures. Uh, do we actually say that Jesus says the same thing, you know. So that, uh, which is great, instead of like trying to line up different systems of uh, dogma next to each other or different uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, intellectual frameworks, you know, to see if they mesh together, it's better to look to see if the proof is in the pudding, you know, uh, whether wisdom is justified by her children or not, as well, Jesus says. I think what you're getting at really well there is, is this, just because somebody even quotes a Bible verse doesn't mean that they're quoting the Bible. Uh, you, you need to go back and look at those texts together. And the only way to really, I think Pieper's point is ultimately, the only way to resolve our differences in Christianity, period, is to go back to Scripture, all of us admitting we are underneath it and trust it, and then trying to find out and distinguish what it really says. But he's, he's making the case, though, that's not really the approach that, that churches really, well, tend to take. 
Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, he wants to argue from the scriptures, our position on the uh, on grace, you know, and then also on the Lord's Supper. And he wants to point out that when uh, the Reformed are trying to do that, or at least when they say that they're doing that, they're mixing in a kind of synthesis with reason, such that, you know, the scriptures can't stand alone, but rather reason has to come alongside and massage out the real uh, meaning of the text. He's going to try to show this then in specifics here. So section A then continues, bottom of page 25, rationalistic considerations have produced first the reformed doctrine of the means of grace. That's what he's going to now talk about now. So that when a Calvinist is wingly, and here really you, do, you can throw in the entire fellowship of Protestantism outside of the Lutheran Church. Anybody that practices open communion, by definition, makes them themselves part of the same fellowship on this teaching, uh, whether they like it or not. Um, they all teach that Jesus is not physically in flesh and blood on the altar. While Scripture teaches that God offers and gives the forgiveness of sins, which Christ gained and creates and sustains faith through external means ordained by him, Zwingli and Calvin— we should maybe talk about Zwingli here in just a moment, but John Calvin, kind of the most well-known Presbyterian or Calvinist teacher, Zwingli and Calvin argue that it does not befit the Holy Ghost to make use of external means for the revelation and operation of his grace. That is, he doesn't use anything other than himself, not even words. That he does not need such external means and that he does not, in fact, use them where his saving grace operates. And this Holy Spirit, which severed the Holy Spirit from the means of grace, Holy Spirit in scare quotes, this scare quotes Holy Spirit, which severed the Holy Spirit, the real one, from the means of grace, caused the division in the Protestant camp at the time of the Reformation. It raised the charge against Luther that he did not understand the gospel, for by clinging to the means of grace, he showed that he was still, in their words, in the flesh. So the big idea being, they don't believe the Holy Spirit needs to use anything in creation to save creation. And where they... they it's so amazing to me that those who would cling to Scripture as they do, I mean, he gives them credit earlier. They, they defend the Scriptures. They still effectively have to even say the Holy Spirit doesn't use the means of Scripture, but that by some immediate imparting, he prepares you, and Scripture kind of points you in the right direction, but it's not a, a, a literal means of grace. Yeah, the means of grace are always um, uh, humble, I suppose. You know, it's a humble word. It's a humble bread and, and wine. It's humble water. That's brought to us, and so um, the, the the rationalistic bend of of Zwingli and Calvin are going to say, no, that that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit to have uh, these these physical things mashed up with spiritual realities. Uh, their their rationalism is really Gnosticism. Uh, it, what Luther says, enthusiasm. Uh, it's a it's a refusal to recognize the external word of God. These these means as the tools that the Lord uses. And, and the result is, which Peeper's going to point out, and this is absolutely wonderful, is when you reject the external means, then you go to the internal means so that, so that rationalism leads directly to mysticism. Uh, rejecting the external word of God is going to, the only thing you have left is you're looking for the immediate uh, effect of the word of God inside of you. A and this distinction between the external word and the internal world word. Uh, Calvin says this really clearly. He says, we have to distinguish between two types of calling. You have the external preaching of the gospel, which goes out to all people, but you have the internal working of the Holy Spirit. And and which is the preaching that in fact is true? Which is the preaching that brings God's grace and salvation? It's the internal preaching, not the external preaching. So this rejection of the means of grace on rationalistic grounds 
leads immediately to the monster of uncertainty and to the to the looking for the immediate effect of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You touched on a couple of things there. You touched on really you said Gnosticism, but it's Plato and the division of matter and spirit. You touched on uh, how rationalism must become mysticism. I think that's fascinating. Would either of you want to just kind of flush those out for me? Well, the, I, I have I found two quotations which are really interesting because um, Gerhardt in his theological commonplaces is going to make this uh, connection. He's where the, that the rejection of the external word leads to mysticism, and and he's going to talk about, for example, first Karlstadt, um, he who claims that his reading of the words of the Lord's Supper, "This is my body," means this is my body seated here at the table, is something that he quote learned from some man who appeared to him in a vision who he thought was the heavenly father. Now, can you imagine that? So that Karlstadt, who was rejecting the Lutheran doctrine of the Lord's Supper, claims his interpretation comes not from the scripture, but from a vision. And then Gerhardt talks about Zwingli. Uh, uh, Gerhardt says this, in support of his interpretation of the Lord's Supper, he learned the true words, quote, from a nocturnal teacher about whom he didn't know whether he was black or white. In other words, Zwingli claimed to get his understanding of the Lord's Supper from a dream, from someone appearing to him in a dream. Now, how amazing is that? Is that rationalism so immediately switches over to this mystical experience where we claim to have the true interpretation of God's word, not from the words themselves, but from some other means, some other mechanism. So while they're always kind of plain as reasonable, in a sense, they're hyper-spiritual, they're spiritualists. And then again, they're def- what they're defending because they believe it to be so reasonable is this division between matter and spirit, that the Holy Spirit is somehow too good for his created things. Uh, it, it almost verges on denial of the incarnation. I, they don't ever actually take it that far, but it almost sounds like you know you can't have God becoming man because he would have means at that point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I think... I, I would reinforce what you just said there, Pastor Fisk, that uh, there is a kind of Platonism at work here, you know. Uh, so one of the tenets of Platonism is that spirit immateriality is better than uh, body or flesh or corporeality or that which we have, you know, in front of us and we receive by our senses. This is an old pagan philosophy. And yet it, we know this, that before the Reformation, in the run-up to the Reformation during the rise of Renaissance humanism, uh, there was also a, a reappreciation of these old Platonic philosophies and these Neoplatonic philosophies and uh, the veneration for all things immaterial and spiritual. And uh, uh, it's, it's such that it seems as if, uh, so Pastor Wolfmuller is right, they, they're, they're, they've run off into a kind of mysticism. But only because they've given uh, uh, so much credence and so much uh, and so much respect to a pagan philosophy that would make a division between the immaterial and the material, where scriptures, I would contend, knows nothing of the sort. You know, so in the scriptures, the spiritual is always bound up with the physical, uh, uh, unless you're, I suppose, talking about the angels. But you know, so when Jesus says, "When you're born from above," he doesn't he doesn't exclude water from that, but water is a part of that. That's where spiritual birth comes from. You, you, know? you made so a really it, interesting thing. I, I got to jump on before you go too far from it, because, you know, unless yeah. you say the angels, doesn't Paul say that if there is an earthly body, there's a heavenly body? I mean, he actually kind of makes the case that even the spiritual is is physical. I, and that's speculation of it. We can't go too far there. But your, your, your point that we are, we're, we're using something we're assuming to be true 
to undermine mm-hmm. what Scripture says rather than letting Scripture tell us what's actually true and using that to interpret what we see. Right. That's that's exactly how it should be said. Yes. And uh, this does get around to a denial of the incarnation. You see that in the argument of the formula of Concord, where you have Article 7 talking about the Lord's Supper, and then Article 8 has to immediately follow up with the discussion of the two natures of Christ. Because when you get the Lord's Supper wrong, you you start to rot away at the foundation of the incarnation itself. Yeah, it's the beating heart of everything. Now, there's, um, I, I shouldn't say everything, but of, of our Christian faith. And once you start taking away this is, I mean, I, I kind of laugh in the present day uh, when you have the Protestant world arguing for literal six-day creation, which I do confess and believe in, but, you know, they, we got we must take Genesis literally. And then you got Jesus saying this is, and oh, we must take it symbolically. And it's like, well, who gets to decide since we've just decided we can pick and choose when we want to, you know? Um, so right. Peeper's trying to prove this point. So he's not just saying this and not giving examples. He's got a couple examples here, and you'll find them in the footnotes, which I won't always take us there, but these are these are just so juicy. I, I really want to go there. So Ulrich Zwingli, whose name we haven't, again, explained yet, he was a, a contemporary of Luther's. He initially seemed to be part of the Lutheran Reformation, was real excited about grace, real excited about getting rid of the papacy. Uh, but then as the Reformation continues, you, there's a division that arises between his followers and Luther's followers. They try to get together. They almost pull it off. They can agree on 13 of 14 points of doctrine, but the one point they can't agree on is the substance of what the Lord's Supper actually is. And so they end up going different ways. So he only has quite a disgusting end, I suppose, tries to lead a bit of a revolt, ends up getting killed in a, in a war. But then later, his his mantle is picked up by Calvin, a little bit more well-known name because his legacy really lasts. But it's tough to distinguish their theology on these matters. They, they really were very similar. So first, he's going to quote this guy Zwingli, um, and then he's going to give us some quotes from, from Calvin as well. But Zwingli, in a book called uh, Faith and Reason, uh, says, quote, the spirit needs no guide or vehicle for he has himself the power and the bearer by whom everything is born who needs not to be born. Uh, so, again, Peeper is just trying to prove his point that Zwingli says that they teach a Holy Spirit who works without means. They have removed even the need for the word of God in the Christian's life. Just thoughts on that quote. I think this is, I mean, just as a helpful strategy, I mean, people reading this, the argument between the Lutherans and the Zwinglians and the Calvinists, and they say, man, it sounds really mean. Like if you're, um, if you come after the Zwinglians or the Calvinists, you're insulting them. But I want to maybe just point out that Pieper is quoting them, letting them speak and saying, now we disagree with them. In fact, he he respects them enough to disagree with them. Right. Uh, You know, we have a for whatever reason, this kind of comparative symbolics, looking at what different churches say is distasteful to us, but it it should be the opposite. I mean, we should respect our brothers and sisters in Christ who have different confessions. We should respect them enough to, in fact, listen to what they say and acknowledge that they're saying something different than we say. Of course, we have to also acknowledge that they're saying something different than the Bible. That's where it really uh, gets down to what's important, but that's what's going on here too. So he lets Zwingli say, it kind of expresses point, which is that the Holy Spirit carries, he doesn't need to be carried. So that he has a he has a rationalistic principle, which is that the Holy Spirit is very, very uh, powerful, strong, uh, exalted, glorious. Therefore, he would never wanted, he would never be so humbled to be carried along in the word or whatever. The trouble is that's just not what the Bible says. Uh, the scripture comes to us in the word. That's the clear confession of the texts of the, of the scripture themselves. 
isn't it Luther who says, you know, they say that the spirit doesn't need the word, but then they go about yammering and chapping and, and talking all the time, filling the world with their teaching because no one can understand what they're saying if they don't bring it across. And this is where the Lutheran doctrine of, of the word and spirit being fused, uh, you know, which is behind what the means and grace, if we want to call it that, the sacraments actually is, is the power of the word that the spirit's in the word. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Nobody believes in Jesus until somebody tells them about Jesus. Even those, I mean, you can go with these these extreme situations from the mission field where maybe somebody has a vision in which they see Jesus saying, you should believe in me. What's he always say to them? Go talk to the pastor over there. He's got stuff to tell you. And they go and they find the real church and they get taught. You, you What happens with the wise men following the star, the magi? Uh, they, they get brought to what? The scriptures. The scriptures then send them to Christ. It's just insane. There, There is no practical reason to take this route. And then you have the theological reasons it would, where the scriptures actually give us this great comfort and confidence that, well, that the Spirit is making these precious promises that we can trust in. That the How do we have faith? By hearing. How do we hear? Those are sent to preach to us. It, it would be nice that, I mean, so yeah, Luther makes that argument. If the Holy Spirit's going to work and create faith apart from the Word, then why don't you guys all shut up? I mean, that's... Uh, but, but he, he, the point there is that when um, when the the scriptures themselves, when the Holy Spirit leaves the scriptures, when the scriptures themselves leave the capacity to deliver comfort to us, something else will enter in. It'll be the word of man. It'll be an experience. It'll be, as Peter goes on to say, basically the same thing as the refu- infused grace of the Roman Catholics, where, where he says that it, whenever the scripture is gone, whenever the objective promise is gone, then they necessarily base their confidence in God on the inward transformation, illumination, and renewal, which allegedly is affected by an immediate operation. So that, so that the uh, as soon as you, by reason, uh, separate the Scripture from the Spirit, the thing that comes in is the spirit of mysticism, the spirit of enthusiasm, the spirit of God's immediate interaction on our insides, and that is uh, there's no comfort in that at all. Two more quotes, one from the Institutes um, and one from a later theologian, a Calvinist theologian, again, just trying to make the point of the claim within their system that the Spirit doesn't need the Word and leads everywhere. Pastor Wolf Miller just said it leads. Uh, Calvin writes in Institutes 4, chapter 14, uh, I believe this is paragraph 17, we get rid of that fiction by which the cause of justification and the power of the Holy Spirit are included in the elements as vessels and vehicles. Now, we get it rid of that fiction. It's a lie that the cause of justification, that the justifying power from the Holy Spirit comes in stuff, right? Vessels, vehicles, probably directly speaking about water, bread, and wine, but this this applies to the Word as well. Um, and then the Geneva, Cate- uh, the Geneva Catechism says, it does not inhere in the visible sign so that we should have to seek salvation there. In other words... You can't trust your baptism as a promise from God. You can't trust the Lord's Supper as God's declaration to you that he is favorable upon you. You cannot even trust the absolution or forget the absolution, the preaching of the pastor declaring you to be among the elect because you just don't know. You can't look to an outward sign. It has to be an inward motion of the spirit immediately. And to me, holy moly, is that terrifyingly dark stuff. Yeah, it's dark. You know, it's funny to me, uh, the Reformed, if I remember uh, correctly, really lean hard on John 6 and this distinction between spirit and flesh, right? And then yet, and then what comes to my mind is John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. And of course, you know, apparently Calvin at this point would jump up and down and say, yeah, you see it, you Lutherans? There, even the scripture has my back. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. In fact, he destroys the kind of distinction that Calvin would like to make by saying, the words, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so there Jesus is saying that whatever spirit is there and whatever life is to be had by the spirit comes by what? His words, the words that he speaks. He does, Jesus doesn't know of any sort of spirit or life apart from his words, but it is the spirit and life that only comes by his words. Even in John 6, where they would run for support in their uh, imaginary distinction, I mean, they can't find help there. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, because the word is well, the author of all creation, the author of all flesh, and the fact that he became flesh, dwelt among us, and now says, take and eat, this is my flesh and blood. I mean, I, I just think it's nuts. We wouldn't want the confidence, the grace, and this is what this is still about. This is still all about grace, the grace that this promises to us. Talking about Christian theology, truth, and helping your worldview development here on Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, with Pastor Brian Flammy and Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, both out there at Hope Lutheran in Aurora, Colorado. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. You definitely want to stick around. Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Manager of Development, inviting you to join us for share 2017, April 20th through the 22nd. During share 2017, you'll enjoy your favorite guests and program hosts as we celebrate the ministry and mission of Worldwide KFUO. Our annual share is a great time for your continued prayers and support. Celebrate KFUO and have fun with all your radio friends during share 2017, April 20th through the 22nd. My son Aiden has asthma. Secondhand smoke has triggered his asthma so badly, he ended up in the emergency room and spent multiple nights in intensive care. Now he's on a whole bunch of medications. My tip to you is, don't be shy about telling people not to smoke around your kids. Half of U.S. kids are exposed to secondhand smoke. If you or someone you know wants help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Popularly known as a Christmas tradition telling the nativity of the Messiah, George Friedrich Handel's famous oratorio, Messiah, proclaims the full narrative and good news of Jesus' nativity, life, death, and resurrection to rescue us from our sin. Join us for a broadcast of this beloved sacred classic, Easter Sunday, 1 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO. Passover, a celebration of freedom, the Jewish commemoration of God passing over the houses of the Jews during the last of the ten plagues described in the book of Exodus, when the Lord said to Moses, Tell the whole community of Israel, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
In a celebration lasting seven or eight days, Jews will share in one of the most well-known holidays on the Jewish calendar, remembering the story from the book of Exodus in a feast of freedom. Engage with the Bible, sharing in a tradition celebrated over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. You've been listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, and KFUO is listener-supported. What we do here at Cross Defense is brought to you by you. And so I got here in studio with me, Mary Schmidt of the Development Department here at KFUO, to talk a little bit about something we call share Yes, we are wanting to invite all of our listeners to tune in to KFUO on April 20th through the 22nd for our annual share fundraising event. Our goal since 1924 has been to spread the gospel of Jesus worldwide over the radio airwaves and with advances in technology we can reach people now on the internet and it's a great time to partner with us to help us continue this mission for two and a half days we will have special guests joining us on air to talk about how KFUO has made an impact in their lives in their work and in their communities there are various levels of giving support that you can call in and pledge at and each level you will receive a unique thank you gift from KFUO this year's gifts include a KFUO keychain flashlight a KFUO long sleeve button up shirt, our day sponsorship, a cargo cooler bag, and our KFUO tumbler cup. On top of this, we have a very generous matching gift this year, which means that when you pledge, your gift is doubled. That's twice the gift and twice the impact. As a listener-supported station, we depend on your help and the Lord's blessing to continue spreading the love of Jesus across the globe. So we hope that you will join us for fun on April 20th through the 22nd for share 2017. We know you love the programming here at KFUO. That's why you listen, because you know you're always going to get law and gospel. You're always going to get Jesus. And part of that then, us sharing Jesus with you and the world, is you helping us make that happen. share is how we do that. And uh, doubling your dollar, what more can you ask for? If you love Cross Defense, and I know you do, you definitely need to tune in April 20th through the 22nd and participate in this year's share Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We are the messenger of good news, helping you to rightly discern law and gospel, understand who Jesus is, what he's done. Cross Defense today is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, doing great work in Mongolia, Slovakia, all over the world, translating classic Lutheran texts, small catechism, Book of Concord, children's garden of Bible stories into the languages of the people that they might have them to teach their families, their children, pastors, to be able to preach. But here right now, we're talking about Dr. Peeper's distinction between two religions of the world, works and grace, coming down to whether or not I believe Scripture or not. Scripture clearly says that it's grace and trying to show how all the divisions in Christianity come back to rejecting Scripture and thereby rejecting grace, even if it's not officially, but only in practice. And he's been kind of laying the groundwork for how the reform that is Zwinglian and Calvinist bodies reject grace, not officially, but in practice by elevating their reason over what Scripture says and to the extent that, at times, they'll even accuse the Lutherans of not really being Christians. Now, I'm not saying all Calvinists think Lutherans aren't Christians, but I'm going to say that Zwingli said this to Luther. And there's another one of the footnotes here on, on page 26 of volume one in his dogmatics, footnote 40. Zwingli says to Luther, I, Zwingli, am going to show you, Luther, that you have never grasped the vast and marvelous glory of the gospel. And if you have once known it, you have forgotten it. He's saying that to him about his belief in the Lord's Supper. 
Right? He's accusing Luther of having totally given himself over to, to Romish tradition and losing, therefore, grace at all. And as a Lutheran who like lives and dies by grace alone in the supper, because I can look there for grace, I find that pretty, pretty intense. Uh, the next paragraph, then, we can talk about any of this. The next paragraph continues by saying, and this is kind of Peeper's driving point, separating the revelation and operation of grace from the means of grace, word and sacrament, is in effect a reversion to the Romish infused grace and therefore a defection from the Christian doctrine of justification. So it's not that the, the Calvinists were saying never knows the gospel at all. We're saying that the teaching defects from the gospel of justification by going back to the infusion of grace. But we should probably talk about that. What's infused grace and uh, what's people getting at beyond that? So infused grace is that doctrine where uh, your nature is repaired. I mean, that is what grace does. So if I am uh, 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 sort of beholden to the Roman Catholic teaching on this, uh, uh, God gives me grace such that I can start doing works and I can even do the, the work of faith, right? By understanding intellectually what, what the gospel is saying, that I can begin doing the Ten Commandments. And then after my nature has been repaired, prepared enough and, and so, so put back together enough, I can then uh, be justified. At least that's what Rome teaches. And and it's sort of uh, quite the stab by Peeper, right, that he is now to calling uh, the Reformed huh, Romish by teaching a kind of infused grace. But practically speaking, he's right. And, and Pastor Wolfmuller mentioned this before the break, uh, that because uh, uh, God's grace is not uh, uh, on account of the, 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 the promise and it's not the external word, right? Uh, uh, it, the God's uh, the grace is now a kind of inner disposition huh, that has been worked immediately in me by the Holy Spirit. It refers more to nature than it does to God's word and what God says about me. It's a sort of indelible character, right? That, that you've got this special anointing that comes out of nowhere. It'll be around and close to the words of God but not really in, with, or under them, if I can use it that way. Uh, the next paragraph then says, or the rest of the paragraph says, For when men set aside the external means of grace, they can no longer base their confidence in God on God's gracious disposition, i.e. on the forgiveness of sin for Christ's sake, which the grace of God offers in the gospel promise, and which is to be believed on the basis of this objective promise and offer. They necessarily base their confidence in God on an inward transformation, illumination, renewal, which allegedly is affected by this immediate operation. This reduces grace in the final analysis to a good quality in man. All those who follow Zwingli's and Calvin's instructions and seek an immediate illumination and renewal necessarily substitute for the genuine operation of the Spirit their own human product." Now, I mean, we could we we've we've kind of talked about that. And we can we can certainly pull it apart more, but I'm pretty sure there's a good chance there's a Calvinist someday somewhere out there who hears this and says, "I don't believe that. I don't think that's true." Now, what do we say to to that person at this moment? Well, uh, it's good that the Calvinist doesn't um, can believe something that they believe that there's something to believe in the promise, and that's the point that Peeper's getting after. If you say that the Holy Spirit does not is not carried along by the Word. You're not, it's not just the word that you're losing. You're losing the word of promise. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus is for the Calvinist an empty preaching, a spiritless preaching, an ineffective preaching, because the true effect is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And th this is going to come eventually around to the point that, that they deny universal grace, that, uh, that it can't be for everybody that the gospel comes. 
it has to be only for those few who are uh, predestined before the foundation of the world and who even knows who those are. So the gospel promise is uh, of necessity for the Calvinist, a lie to those who are not predestined. And that the fact that the truth is mixed with a lie and you can't know the difference by what you hear is uh, it undermines all Christian confidence in the word. And Peeper's bold to point that out. Well, and I think, I mean, tell me if this is, is, is right or wrong here. If a Calvinist pipes up and says, well, I don't, I don't believe what you just said Calvinism teaches, well, then great. That means you're believing what Lutheranism teaches on the matter, and you're being inconsistent with the rest of the Calvinist system. A, a Calvinist who would point you to say word and sacrament ministry is the place to find your confidence in the gospel is not being consistent with his own system. Yeah, that's a felicitous inconsistency, as uh, our good Dr. Pieper would say. And we give thanks to God for those inconsistencies, and that's why we can say there are Christians, even among the Reformed and the Roman and in the Roman Catholics. Uh, what Pieper's point is, it, what Pieper's point is, is to merely point out the terrible and deadly flaw in, in in teaching grace as they do, such that if you if you draw it out to its ultimate conclusion, it robs you of the external promise and the word of comfort. Now, if they still have the word of promise and comfort, uh, uh, what it means is that they haven't followed their inconsistency to its logical conclusion. And and for that, we should give thanks. And we would also probably encourage them to take a look at what they're preaching and teaching and compare it against uh, what God's word says concerning his means of grace and his sacraments, right? So far as I can see it, where the rubber really hits the road on this is in pastoral care. And, and it's when an individual who is a Christian is experiencing that afik tongue, that that dark night of the soul, the moment of doubt, the moment of uncertainty, where whether it's because they've done an actual sin and they they've repented of it, but they they're still struggling with it, or whether it's just kind of the the morass of of doubt and depression that kind of comes and goes for some, in that moment, the the Calvinist can't say, well, remember your baptism you're baptized into Christ, that's enough. He can't say, come quickly to the Lord's Supper and receive the forgiveness of sins there. He cannot place a hand on the head and say, I absolve you in the stead and by the command of Christ. Instead, he has to do this thing where he points you to an inward transformation, illumination, and renewal. He has to point you to somewhere that you can find the faith in yourself. Don't don't you know that you believe? And even though that can kind of almost be a cold comfort for the one who's really in the throes of, of being conscience-stricken, it, it's, it's a death knell. Right? The, the reason their conscience is, is so broken is precisely because they've been looking for that illumination. They've been trying to transform their life, and they're finding, well, more, more weeds underneath the soil. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, if we're ever directed back to, the own condition, to our own condition, to our own hearts, uh, we don't find anything within ourselves other than darkness and, and uh, corruption that leads to death. Uh, and so our hope and our confidence, as, as Jesus would have it given to us, uh, is, is external to us. And that is the greatest gift, uh, that we don't have to look at a reparation of nature to see and, and by sort of an, you know, nasal, nasal gazing, navel, <laughs> navel gazing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That by navel gazing, you know, we find our comfort. I mean, anyone who's honest with themselves, whatever they gaze into their you to gaze within themselves, they don't find Jesus. They find a hypocrite who teaches what people were saying is the opinion of the law, that I should by my works and by my goodness please God and merit his grace. And we don't have 
within ourselves or even within our own uh, human teachings, anything that resembles Jesus and his cross and his gospel and his supper and his baptism that always comes to us from without. Uh, yeah. That, that kind of brings us, I think, well to the quote from Luther that ends the paragraph, because you talked about that religion of the law that's built on us and that without scripture, we're always going to end up back there. And so no matter what you found your religion on, if it's not scripture preaching Christ crucified as grace for you, you're going to end up teaching the same thing. And so Luther can boldly say, Papist and enthusiast are one, meaning one and the same. And the judgment there, Pieper says, is not an outburst of the immoderate polemics of the 16th century. This isn't Pieper having, I mean, this isn't Luther having a potty mouth right now, right? Um, this is based on the fact that at the end of the day, both of them end up pointing you inside yourself, whereas the scriptures are outside of you and point you to Christ outside of you. I think this is the most brilliant theological statement outside of the scriptures. Uh, Luther fleshes this out in Small Called 3.8, where he's talking about confession, and he says, every error is enthusiasm. Uh, and that, that is, uh, the, you know, t a technical term. We, we think of enthusiasm as being really excited about something, but uh, Luther's using it in the technical sense of looking for the word inside of yourself rather than in the external word of God. The Pope is an enthusiast. He finds all doctrine in the shrine of his heart. Mohammed is an enthusiast, he says. He finds all the doctrine in himself. The Anabaptists are enthusiasts. They're looking for themselves for the inner confirmation of the word. The Calvinists are enthusiasts because they separate the external word from the internal word. And Luther says that the, the devil tempted Adam and Eve to become enthusiasts when he tempted them away from the word of God and what they saw and experienced and knew in themselves about the fruit. So that every, every single theological error is the same. It is a move away from the external word of God into the internal impressions or experiences or whatever, uh, anything else to replace the word of God and look to it for truth and to com and and to and for comfort, and uh, and so every this is it's a there's a singularity in every false doctrine and it's called enthusiasm. The following paragraph kind of takes us where we've already been, but I think we maybe just got ahead a little bit. But it's it's certainly worth looking at again. It's kind of what does this mean and and asking the question about what would consistency look like. The fact, Pieper says, that despite the Reformed repudiation of the means of grace, many Christians are found in Reformed denominations. This is due to an inconsistency. So he acknowledges that there are Christians there. We're not saying they're not Christian, uh, even though Zwingli said so of us, um, uh, but that there is an inconsistency there, to which Luther points frequently. And that is this. If the Reformed would translate their theory concerning the supposed immediate operation of the Spirit into practice— they would have to refrain from proclaiming the gospel. And if you if you take the spirit doesn't need any means whatsoever to his logical conclusion, then you would just stop preaching. He does it's useless. He's going to do it eventually. And they would keep silence lest they interfere with the operation of the spirit. Because I think the idea there being that you're very capable of messing it up. You can get in the way, right? But they refuse to do this. And insofar as they teach the gospel of the Savior crucified for the sins of the world, they give the Holy Ghost the opportunity to create and sustain faith, not without the word and alongside the word, but through the word mediately. That is, with the word as the medium, as the communicating factor, as the thing which gives the actual grace. Yeah, isn't that great that Jesus works despite their, uh, uh, their errors in doctrine? <laughs> By virtue of the fact that his word is powerful to elicit faith. 
not because one, you know, not because of a uh, uh, a premise of doctrine is right or wrong, but by virtue of the fact that this is actually what the word is and what the word does. So then, this was all people showing that there is one way in which the reform demonstrate that they have a reason over scripture reality, and that is how they approach the mean of, means of grace. The next paragraph, starting at section B there on page 27, shows well, there's another place where this happens. We've already kind of gotten there, but you can't take away the, the means of grace, meaning the word of God, without ultimately then getting rid of the supper as well. So he says, when the reform deny the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper, they are repudiating the word of God because of rationalistic considerations. They admit directly and indirectly that the scriptural statements on the Lord's Supper indicate on their face, not the absence, but the presence of the body and blood of Christ. But, they say, the words of institution must be so interpreted that they agree with, quote-unquote, faith. And when they are asked what this faith is, which must interpret the Scripture, the Reformed theologians of all times do not adduce Scripture, but a rationalistic axiom. They insist that since every human body occupies space and is visible, the body of Christ, too, can have only a visible and local mode of presence, else it would not be a true human body. The presence of Christ's human nature cannot extend beyond the natural dimensions of the body and consequently cannot suffice for the simultaneous celebration of the Lord's Supper at many places in the real world. So <laughs> it's, it's well said, right? But let's just kind of look at the argument in like about three points here. They admit it says, this is my body, but... You have to interpret that so it agrees with Christianity and with the faith of Christianity. Okay, well, what's that mean? It means that a human body can only be in one place at one time. Well, where did you get that one from Scripture? That's the point, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's how Luther argues it's great in his great confession all the time. He says, they say that the body of Christ can't be here and there because a body can't be here and there. And Luther says, well, says who? Says who? It says a body can't be here and there. Especially if Jesus says, this is my body, then apparently a body can be here or there. And we believe what the Lord says about himself and about his body, uh, about his gift of the Lord's Supper and, and about his mercy that he gives there. Take and eat, take and drink this for you for the forgiveness of sins. So that uh, so that uh, Luther leans on the word of God. And Peeper's pointing out that the only way you can fight against the word of God is not with the scripture, but rather with uh, with reason, with axioms drawn from human reason, and that is not—that's um, using—that's using reason uh, against the scriptures, which is never how reason was meant to be used. The Lord gave us the gift of reason to serve the scriptures, to serve the Lord's words, so that we could understand clearly what the Lord is saying, not so that we could confuse what He's saying and make it say something different. You have that great Lutheran distinction there between the magisterial use of reason and the ministerial. Magisterial not meaning majesty like divine majesty, but like magistrate, a teacher. Uh, between the teaching use of reason and the ministering that is the serving use of reason. So that reason does not teach the scriptures, but it does serve as we understand the scriptures. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's this line in Proverbs where it says, there's nothing worse than a fool that's been made a king. And that's, uh, you know, that's the danger that happens. What's it like when, to serve under you in Aurora, I wonder? <laughs> Everyone who's listening, Everyone who's listening, that was said Wait, just for Pastor Flammy to make him smile. <laughs> Sorry, continue, Brian. But that's exactly what happens when, when reason uh, steps out of its vocation as servant and begins to try to take upon himself the vocation of ruler. 
Uh, it's going to be an absolute disaster. Everything's going to fall apart. And, and in fact, you begin to use reason against the very words that are there, which is the very thing that reason was supposed to serve in the first place. It's Wait, horrible. Okay, is it okay? Can I, can I play devil's advocate for a second? Sure. Uh, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, let's pretend that I'm a, a Zwinglian and I say, hey, look, guys, uh, we, we have a confession that we're bound to from the Holy Scriptures. You know, the Scriptures teach that Jesus is a real human being, you know, that he actually has a human nature, uh, not a pretend human nature, but a real human nature, you know, that we see uh, in the scriptures where Jesus weeps, where he eats, where he sleeps, you know. Uh, now, if this is part of our confession, that Jesus is a real human being, then shouldn't we also maintain that uh, uh, Jesus is continues to be a real human being even after his ascension into heaven? I mean, it seems to me, as a Zwinglian, that uh, if I'm trying to say something about Jesus being bodily present in many places at the same time where the supper is, is, is given, according to its promise, then I'm actually uh, denying something that I would think to be essential to the human nature. Namely, that I am uh, uh, in a place, circumcised that, or circumscribed to that place. <laughs> Human um, bodies can be circumcised that, too, if, if they need to be. But that, very true. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, that's right. So Jesus I, was circumcised as according to his human nature. Human nature. That's right. I, I love. I love though that question because it's kind of like the question from earlier. Our answer is, thank God, you're you're desiring to cling to the incarnation of Jesus. Thank God you want to teach in its fullness the reality that our Lord has taken humanity and its nature entirely into himself in such a way so as not to dissolve or get rid of any of it, but that it remains truly a human nature and will until and beyond even the end of time itself. Thank God for that. But who are we to say what Jesus, having been human, is able to do as a human based on the rest of scripture because we see him doing many things that normal human bodies don't do things like walking on water things like well frankly healing people just by touching them although i guess you do get a little of that from the apostles later things like appearing in an upper room where the doors have all been locked for fear of the jews things like ascending into heaven not on a chariot of fire but just of his own volition right he, he manages to take his humanity into himself in such a way that it doesn't stop him from being God either. And by the unity of his person, being Jesus the Christ, the eternal son of God, he holds to both of those natures. And our fear, I think, if I, and Brian, Brian, both jump in on this if I'm, if I'm not saying this correctly, our fear would be that in your desire to keep the human nature, make sure you don't throw out the divine nature. You want to keep them both. That's right. And in fact, this is how the Lutherans would critique the, the, the Reformed, right? Uh, that they are so uh, keen on keeping the natures distinct and pure and maintaining an idea of the human nature that they really end up with two Christs, the human Christ and the divine Christ. Uh, that in, in the end, the infinite is not capable of the finite, which is exactly what scripture teaches in the incarnation of the Son of God, right? Uh, and so I think Pastor Wolfbuehler said it right uh, before when he pointed us back to Luther's great confession of 1528. Uh, Luther says, makes this simple point. Who are we to say what uh, the human nature is capable of or not capable of? Shouldn't we, sort of the final authority on this, bind ourselves to what Jesus says? And so if Jesus says, this is my body, we don't step in and say, hey, wait, Jesus, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You, uh, surely you didn't mean that because we know that human nature isn't capable of, of this bread uh, being your body. No, we listen to Jesus and say, amen. You know, When he took the bread and the fish, 
and passed them out beyond their natural capacity, did it cease being bread and fish? No, it remained bread and fish, even as he did as Lord of creation things with it, which no one else can do. And why would he not be Lord of his own body? Why would he be trapped within his own body when he is Lord of creation itself? I want to make sure I read these last couple of quotes here from uh, from Pieper so that we get the, the quotations of where he's finding these ideas in Zwingli and Calvin. He says, bottom of page 27, Karlstadt and Zwingli and Calvin too deny the real presence clearly taught in the words of institution on the strength of of the rationalistic canon, the, you know, the, 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 the reasonable idea that wherever the body of Christ is, it must necessarily occupy space and be visible. The Reformed denial of the real presence is thus based not on what Scripture says, but on what reason dis- dictates. And the footnote 41, he quotes Calvin Institutes 4, The presence of Christ in the supper must be such as neither divests him of his just dimensions, nor dissevers him by difference of place, nor makes him occupy a variety of places at the same time. Again, based on what actual declaration of Scripture? Again, he says, quote, The essential properties of the body are to be confined by space. I would counter uh, that the essential qualities of bread are to be uh, limited in its amount. The essential qualities of water is that you don't walk on it. There's many places where Jesus, by miraculous ability, manages to make the creation do what he wants. Uh, Calvin then says again, uh, have done with then that foolish fiction, which affixes the minds of men as well as Christ to be bread. So he basically calls our position a foolish fiction. Um, and in the same section, he asserts that John twenty nineteen, in which it does talk about Jesus coming into that upper room, cannot mean that Christ with his body penetrated through solid matter, that an opening had to be provided, and that Luke twenty four thirty one does not say that Christ became invisible. It simply says that their eyes were hidden or held tight. So he, he then has to go about very carefully, and this is always the case, denying other places in Scripture of the ability to say Jesus does things with his body, which humans don't do. Pieper concludes, Calvin even accepts then Luther's definition of the status of the controversy. Quote, that is, Calvin accepts it when Luther says that the Calvinist whole case rests on this, that Christ's body must be at one place only in a local and tangible manner. This is uh, back to the Peeper's point on this, too, because Peeper's getting into the specifics of the discussion on the Lord's Supper. But he's doing it to show that when the Calvinists say Scripture alone, that they're in fact deceiving. They don't, that, they don't mean it and they don't operate that way, even if they're deluding themselves. Because what they're working with is the principle of Scripture and reason. And they bring along these um, canons of reason, these assertions of reason, to interpret the Scripture. A body has to be in one place, so Jesus couldn't have walked through the wall. Jesus couldn't have disappeared. Jesus can't be on the altar giving out his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Because, well, why? Not because the Scriptures forbid it, but because reason forbids it. And, and this is um, showing then really that it's the Lutherans alone who hold the Scripture alone, who let the Scripture speak and tell us what is true and real about God, about ourselves, uh, about eternal life and the resurrection. Uh, but, uh, you know, I love how Pieper also points us to those places in the Scripture. And you guys did this, too, uh, uh, where the Scripture is, is, is clear and, and simple in saying that, you know, Jesus appeared, he disappeared. He walked on water. You know, he gives his body and his blood from the altar. Uh, uh, and if you are a committed Reformed person, then you have to do a lot, a lot of massaging the text uh, in order to arrive at your desired outcome, you know, so that it fits within the bounds of human reason. My guest, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian 
Flammy, both pastors at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Thank you for being with me today, gentlemen. You got it. Yeah, no problem. You listen to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news, and we certainly hope that you have heard that good news in this last hour. Again, Cross Defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy, and you can check them out at lutheracademy.com. Get in touch with them and let them know how much you appreciate all their work, including bringing you Cross Defense here on KFUO. Look, the point here is that there are divisions in the church. And if we're going to get rid of divisions in the church, the only way to do it is to cling to what Scripture says. And that when we cling to what Scripture says, it's going to point us back to grace alone. And if you end up in a situation where you have to practically be teaching to the hearer, to the Christian, to the conscience that's hungry for salvation, we have to teach them to look at themselves, then maybe you're not teaching based on Scripture alone. Maybe you've got some leaven in there that's got you pointed in a different direction, so you've wound up back at that opinion of the law rather than the clear declaration of certainty, promise, gospel outside of you, into which the Christian, whether they be strong or weak in faith, a glimmering wick or a, a foundation, doesn't matter. They can sink their teeth into it. They can stand firm because the foundation isn't them. It's Jesus. We'll catch you guys next time. Rock on.